Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Before we look at um, Mary, Martha, and others, I want you to go to chapter 12, verse 23. When a pastor stands up in the pulpit and he has to pick a section of Scripture to preach, he's always asking himself the question, which is the most important thing for me to say? If I say this, is it okay? But if I say this and I don't say this, do we have a problem? And that's part of the problem the church has today. One of the reasons why we focus on things that are not true. Some people think that Jesus came, for instance, to um, overhaul the political system. He did not. Some people think that Jesus came in order to in order to change the economic system. He did not. Some people think maybe he came to beautify Jerusalem. He could be a member of all of the civic organizations that you and I could possibly think of. He did not come for any of those reasons. But you see, when we don't share the heart of the gospel, we leave people under the impression that Jesus came to do lots of things that we would consider peripheral. But in verse 23, in this chapter, we're coming to a conclusion. Jesus has lived his life. His mission has been very clear. And in verse 23, the Bible says, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. What Jesus is talking about there is his hour is coming, the time at which he gave his life for the world. And whatever you say about Christ, whatever you say about the things that he did, if you don't latch on to the fact that he did all of this to come to this earth in the form of a man, to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be saved, we're in essence wasting our time. Because all Jesus is is a good person, and we got lots of those. All Jesus is is a, is a very compassionate person, and we have lots of those. You see, Jesus stands out above all of that. Well, I just want to say that right off the bat so that I'm not negligent when I maybe don't have time to get to that. But what I want you to do is look at chapter 12, verse 1 and following, and I want you to kind of figure out on what side of the fence you are on. Are you a responder to the truth of God's Word, or are you a reactor? Do you react to it or you do respond to it? Now, I'm going to give you a simple test here, all right? Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Last time we saw Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Lazarus was dead, and Jesus came to Bethany, and he raised Lazarus up. And then Jesus went on another little bit of a tour. It's kind of a, a tour that wasn't well publicized. Uh, but anyway, and then eventually he comes back. And now he's coming back. It's the last week of his ministry. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried falsely. 
and he's going to then be executed. And the religious leaders of that day are the ones who had put it all together. The Department of Justice. Anyway. When he got to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now let's stop there. I want to see where you are, on which side of the fence you are on. Because by every intimation of that passage of Scripture, you and I would look at that and say, well, Jesus stayed at Bethany whenever he was in the city of Jerusalem, and now he's back at Mary and Martha's house. And I even titled the sermon, uh, Supper at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. But I didn't put in a question mark. You say, okay, I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 23. And I want you to look at this passage of Scripture, um, 26 rather. And I want you to look at Matthew chapter 26 and ask yourself the question, is this referring to the same event? Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 6, it says, And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? And on and on it goes. Now, the reason, there's a reason why I'm doing this. You may think this is frivolous, but it is not frivolous because I want you to think about how you respond or react to the Scripture. Put yourself on one side of the fence or the other. If you are in love with the Lord and you see a passage of Scripture that certainly happens at the same time and certainly has all of the characteristics that we would want in order to prove that it's the same event, you give the benefit of the doubt when there appears to be a discrepancy in the facts, don't you? Right? That's human nature. You give a benefit of the doubt. You try to harmonize the two passages of Scripture. However, if you don't like Jesus or you doubt him, or you question him, your response is to tear apart everything that is said. Your response is to tear down. Instead of giving the benefit of the doubt, you're looking for the inconsistencies or the contradictions. And so we have people on both sides of the fence. You have people on one side of the fence who say, this can't possibly be the word of God. Because in John chapter 12, we have the definite impression that this dinner engagement was put on by, it, by Mary and Martha at their house. Even though it doesn't exactly say that, 
They certainly were the hosts, but they were the hosts in the house of Simon the leper. Now, Simon the leper may have lived in the same house of Mary and Martha, but it doesn't make any difference because I have a bad attitude towards Christ. I'm not going to see anything good about him at all, and I'm going to try to tear down or find inconsistencies in everything that I learned about him. And that's human nature today, by the way. You can analyze that in your relationships with everybody. Love covers a multitude of sins, but hate does the opposite. It magnifies the inconsistencies, the apparent contradictions that we have. So you, you put yourself on one side of the fence. Now listen, I know what side of the fence you're on for the most part. But think about that. But think about that. Now I want you to look at, you're in Matthew. I, what I want to do here is I want to take a look at some of these facts here, okay? And I want to, I, I'm going to ask the questions. I want you to read verses 6 and following. They're just, you just get your answers from 6 through 13. First question is, where, was, where, did Mer, where did Jesus go to have his meal? Everybody together. Bethany. What house was he in? The house of Simon the leper, who came with an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. A woman. Do we know her name? No, we don't know her name at this point. She anointed his what? His head. The Bible says that the disciples were what? Indignant. All right? Saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Does the passage say how much, uh, how much money uh, it cost? No, the Bible does not say that. But when Jesus speaks to this woman, she says two things, and I'll skip those temporarily. Now, let's go to Mark chapter 16, or 14. Mark chapter 14, and let's ask ourselves if this is the same event. Mark chapter 14, it takes place around the time of the Passover. It takes place in the last week of Jesus' ministry. So would you suggest the possibility that this happens at the same time? Let's look at the information that we have in Mark chapter 14. In verse 3, where does Jesus go for dinner? Bethany. What house does he go to? Simon the leper. He sits at the table, and who comes with an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard? A woman. Do we know her name? No, we do not. She broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among them. Does it say who was indignant? Just that some were. The first passage says his disciples were. This one says some were. And they agreed, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii. We don't know the cost of the ointment back in chapter, Matthew chapter 26. We know the cost of the ointment in Mark chapter 16. How much did it cost? 300 denarii. How many know how much a denarii was? It was a day's wages. She saved up a long time. 
And so the Bible says, and then Jesus says to her a couple of things, and uh, we'll skip that for the time being. Now go to John, and let's just recount the information that we have here in John. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to where? Bethany, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, and there they made him a supper. They made him a supper. And the people specifically putting this together were who? Martha and Mary. And in verse 3, the Bible says, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the what? The feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. Now, to show you how bad this can be, a lot of people would look at this and say, there's a contradiction, you see, on, 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 on Matthew and Mark. Uh, it was his head that was anointed, and in, in John, it was Jesus' feet. Now, it depends on whether you're reacting or whether you're responding. It depends on whether you are giving love covers a multitude of sins, so to speak. You give the benefit of the doubt to the, to the one who wrote this passage of Scripture, or you're antagonistic, and you're out to prove that there are inconsistencies. So which is it? Which is it? If you, if, if you are harmonizing all of the passages of Scripture, how would you answer that question that it's a woman and it's Mary, all right, okay, and one anointed his head, one anointed his feet? How would you do it? How would you do it? How would you do it? How would you harmonize it? She did both. <laughs> she did both. And anointing, anointing did, uh, often did both. And, 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 and the contra parent of contradiction is gone. And the parent contradiction is gone. Now I want you to look at this passage of Scripture even further. I want you to look at verse 4. I want you to look at verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. You see Judas Iscariot? One of his disciples... Judas is carried. Matthew says all the disciples, some people in the second passage, and Judas Iscariot is the, is the one who is the spokesman for the disciples here. He's the one who says, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? How would you, how would you if you were a reactor, you would say, oh, inconsistency, the author doesn't know what he's talking about, he either forgot the event, he's not clear, he's not being specific enough, I don't know whether he's trustworthy or not. If you're a responder, however, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to put the two together and harmonize it. You're going to say, oh, okay, the disciples got caught up in Judas's very persuasive words. But fortunately, for John, the most important thing was that only Judas Iscariot was, was the one who wanted to carry the day on that. No problem harmonizing. No problem harmonizing. But the sad tragedy of all of this is look at all the people running around the world today who all they do is react to something in Scripture and want to immediately suggest that there must be some contradiction or something. See, that happens a lot. Let's see, put yourself on one side of the fence. Are you a reactor or are you a responder? 
Do you like to try? Do you, do you want to harmonize Scripture, or do you want to put passages in conflict with one another? What do you want to do? What do you do? And the reason why I share that with you is because it probably tells me where you are spiritually. <laughs> and I'll, I'll answer that in just a minute. Because this whole book, this whole chapter is a chapter of comparisons between groups of people. Between groups of people. Now, I'm going to throw a wrench in the works. All right? We said it's at the house of Simon in Matthew. We said it's at the house of Simon in Mark. We, it's implied here that Mary and Martha, but now we understand it may not have been in their house, or if it was in their house, Simon maybe had the deed. See what I'm saying? Families, lots of families lived together in the same house back in the time of the Bible. They didn't have the privilege of, of uh, what we have today, of, of having lots of spacious elbow room, as Daniel Boone used to call it. So... Here's the wrench in the works. Verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Oh, boy. <laughs> now, if you're a reactor, you're going to look at that and say, see, he's, he's got the story all wrong. He doesn't even remember it correctly. Simon's son, Judas Iscariot. How, how would you reconcile the Simon of Matthew, the Simon of Mark, and the Simon of John. How would, you reckon, how would you reconcile those three? Or do you need to reconcile those three? I used to try. I used to say, oh, this must have been Judas Iscariot's house. Simon's his father. Simon owns the house. This must be the same Simon. I used, I used to do that. I don't have to do that. How many Simons are there in the Bible? How many Simons lived in the time of the New Testament? Thousands. How many Simons do we know of in the Bible? Well, one was an apostle called Simon Peter. One was another of two apostles, Simon the Zealot. One was a brother of James, the author of the book of James, and Jude, the author of the book of Jude, so that Simon would have been the brother of Jesus himself, right? Since they were his brothers, James and Jude. There is Simon the leper, who we just talked about. There is Simon of Cyrene, who happened to be in the city of Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. And they grabbed him and said, you carry the cross, right? Then you have the Pharisee, whose name is Simon, who put on a big dinner, luncheon for Jesus, and in walked, in Luke chapter 7, in walked someone from the street who was so appreciative of what the Lord had done in saving her that she anointed him. And immediately reactors will say, well, now we got four stories to deal with. And we say, no, we got two. We got one that has three accounts, and we have one that occurred times earlier. But you see, and then the father of Judas here. So Simon Magus, there's another one in the book of Acts. And there's one called Simon the Tanner who lived on the beach at Joppa with his family who entertained the disciples when they came through on their missionary journeys. 
I'm not a reactor. I'm a responder. I don't see any problem with any of those facts. Now, <clears throat> let's apply right away. We have 10 minutes left, and we have enough time to apply right away. I want you to look at chapter 11, verses 45 and 46. All right? And this is well after what happened with Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And you know the situation. The Jews are just, they heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He's back in Jerusalem for the big Passover. And they're just all over the place trying to see him and trying to get to him and trying to, uh, I mean, after all, if you had been there at the tomb in John chapter 11, it's a cave in the ground. There's a stone in front of it. Here comes a guy who comes and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes, they roll the stone away, and Lazarus comes walking out of that tomb or bouncing out of that tomb because he's somewhat restricted in his, his linen cloth. You would look at him and say, how did you do that? He's been dead for four days. You get close enough to the tomb, you can sniff it a little bit and tell. You see the point. So Jerusalem is really, really excited. In fact, Jerusalem was so excited about the resurrection of Lazarus that when the Pharisees keep talking about taking Jesus and killing him, they say, now we got to kill two people now. We can't just kill Jesus. we got to kill Lazarus too. The only way to get rid of this situation is to kill Lazarus too. But now, later on in the story, and because of the time element, I want you to go directly to these comparisons that we have here. Okay? First of all, stay there in chapter, um, uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 45 and 46 is right before 12. I want to prime your pump uh, just, just for a moment on this, okay? In chapter, uh, chapter 11, when Lazarus was resurrected, in verse 45, many of the Jews who came to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, did what? They believed in him. But then what, what did you also have? Verse 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Which ones are responding? The ones who believed in Jesus. Which ones are reacting? The ones who didn't believe in Jesus. They're reacting. Now, I want you to go to chapter 12, verse 11. The Bible says that in verse 9, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death. Here are the responders. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and what? Believed in Jesus. Many of them went away and believed in Jesus. Now go to verse 37 of the very same chapter. I understand we have to cover, we have to go, go over a lot of information, but I want to get this out to you. In verse 37, um, when Jesus predicts his death on the cross, and we just alluded to one passage of Scripture there at the beginning, but although he had done many signs before them, this group of people are the reactors. They did what? Not believe in him. Nevertheless, verse 42, 
even among the rulers, many what? Believed in him. So you always have two sides of the coin. You always have, it doesn't make any difference. Jesus could be standing here today, and he could be standing in, uh, in, in, in any of our towns preaching on the street, and you're going to always have two groups of people. You're going to have those who are going to respond to the message, and you're going to have those who it doesn't make any difference what Jesus says. It doesn't make any difference what he does. They're going to react to it instead. What side of the fence are you on? See, that's, that's the key. Now, I, I, wa- I want you to, uh, I, I, I want to wrap this up. So what I want to do is I want to go back to Judas for just a second in verse 4. Judas is the one who ultimately is the only one who defended the idea of giving the money to the poor instead of using it on Christ. And Jesus didn't approve of that, not because he was selfish. Jesus said, the poor you're always going to have with you. You're always going to be dealing with them, and you're going to be helping them in their needs. But she has done this for my burial. And so the Bible says when he asked the question in verse 5, John tells us what his motive is behind his question. What is Judas's motive behind his question? Is it because he cared about the poor? Yes or no? No. He does not care about the poor. Why did he do what he why did he say what he said? Because he was a selfish person, a thief, who used to pilfer the money in the bag. So in reality, Judas is piously talking about the poor to hide his true motives. Yes or no? Yes. Judas is a reactor, not a responder. And I would like to add, because the Bible, we just don't have time to get into this Old Testament passage of Scripture that talks about those who don't believe and why they're in that state and why they're in that condition. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. I mean, if I were you and I were a reactor, I would be standing there saying, why why can't I believe? Why can't I believe the truth? Why am I already, why am I always looking for excuses to write it off? Or why am I always trying to find contradictions? Or why am I not, my heart isn't in the right place, you see, because I don't accept what Jesus says. I just try to contradict it in any way I can. If I were an actor, I would actually do that. I think I would. Uh, Maybe it's based on the fact that I'm saved, and Jesus has graciously saved me, but, but I just can't imagine. I just can't imagine once you are confronted with the truth, and you're confronted with the truth, and you're confronted with the truth, why you will not accept it. You see, Judas' life had become a lie, and Satan, Satan is what? He's a liar. So he's a father of lies. Thank you for adding that, because then it adds a little bit of oomph to what I'm going to say next. You see, Satan got his foot in the door of Judas's life, and now he has an opportunity to enter into Judas's life 
wholeheartedly. And if, if we open the door and allow him to put his foot in the door, he is going to influence the rest of our life as far as the truth is concerned. Don't be like those two hunters. Two hunters flew deep into the remote backwoods of Canada to hunt elk. They bagged six elk. The pilot told them the plane could carry only four of the elk out. But the plane had carried us out last year and was the exact same one that we, you, you brought us in this year, said the hunters. We don't see why this won't work. They protested. They argued about it and said the plane's the same horsepower. The weather is similar. Our circumstances, we had six elk then and we have six elk today. And on hearing this, the pilot reluctantly says, well, all right, I'll try. They boarded, they loaded up the plane, took off, but sure enough, there was insufficient power to climb out of the valley with all that weight, and they crashed. As they stumbled from the wreckage, one hunter asked the other, do you know where we are? Well, I'm not sure, replied the second, but I think we are about two miles from where we crashed last year. <laughs> Don't be one of those hunters. I would spend the rest of my life if it took me to do that, to find out why I'm a reactor instead of a responder when the truth is right in the, in, in the front of me, right in front of my face. I, I really would. I really would. It is that important. Your very life, your very salvation depends upon it. And we have a wonderful example of, we have a wonderful example. Let, let me just close it with this illustration here. So here is Mary who takes a pound of very costly ointment, proving her love and her gratitude and her affection for the Lord. Why do you think she's so affectionate and why is she so grateful to the Lord? For what the Lord has done to what? To save her from her sin. To save her from her sin. Then you have Judas here who's lying through his teeth to cover his true motive. And I'm going to throw a third person in here too. Peter. Not many days after this is going to lie through his teeth too. When people come up to him on the night of the crucifixion and say, I know you, you're associated with Jesus. No, 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 I don't know him. I never knew him. See, but the difference between a reactor who can't come to the truth, who can't accept the truth, who's got to tear it down and bucket every step of the way, the difference between that and a responder is Peter. Because after he lied, Three times he repented right on the spot. He realized that he was in a predicament that uh, he just would not be able to live with and he responded to the truth and he repented of what he had done. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for all of, the, all of the people that you give to us that show us the kind of reactions that Jesus, you received when you were here on this earth.
But Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you have changed our hearts, that you have given us hearts to trust in the truth, to respond to the truth and not react to the truth. And I think of all of those who back 2,000 years ago who reacted to the truth, and I wonder to this day how many of them ever had a heart change, or did they go to their graves reacting, reacting. Lord, we know that you were gracious. We know that on the day of Pentecost, you brought thousands to yourself, and thereafter, thousands to yourself, because that's who you are. You're a good and gracious God a heavenly Father that loves us, who was willing to pay the penalty for sin so that we wouldn't have to pay it. Thank you so much for that, in doing that in the person of your Son. Jesus, we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.